Although there's so much shame and stigma with the disability system and everybody thinks it's a bunch of lazy slackers who don't want to work, I want to say that I know a lot of people who are desperate to work. They are desperate to pull their own weight, but they can't because their brain doesn't work right. Their brain is tormenting them or preventing them from doing things that you and I can do normally. And if we can restore their brain function through metabolic treatment, it, it not only reduces their suffering, it not only is going to save a ton of money for the healthcare system, it's going to like turn those people into productive citizens. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm our host, Ben Pekulski. Today, we welcome another incredible guest to the show to talk all about brain health, brain optimization, and how, believe it or not, this actually could very well a, be a metabolic disorder. Any type of brain disorders may very well be correlated to what you're eating, what goes into your body, and how your body processes these things, otherwise known as our metabolism. Dr. Christopher Palmer joins us today. He is a Harvard Medical School physician, a researcher, consultant, and educator. He's recently launched a book called Brain Energy, which has literally taken the fitness industry by storm. He's got incredible insights into the area of what's called psychopharmacology, ultimately how our brain is interacting with different types of pharmacological interventions, psychotherapy, complementary alternative treatments for psychiatric disorder. He is pioneering the use of a ketogenic diet. Uh, for all psychiatric disorders, Dr. Palmer is working with researchers from all around the world to assess the effectiveness of this treatment in real human trials and ultimately to better understand the mechanism of action and why this ketogenic diet would have such a massive impact. So we talk about things like mitochondrial function, ultimately how an average person who may not be experiencing any psychological limitations could benefit from uh, approaching their metabolism for a perspective of optimization of brain energy. We talk a little bit about the benefits of good metabolism for health and how to avoid things like minor depression and fluctuations in brain energy, how that may be ultimately impacting your quality of life, uh, and so much more. Um, incredible conversation with Dr. Paula. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Paleo Valley. Just before I jump into the podcast, uh, I actually had a little snack. I went into some grass-fed meat sticks, uh, which are just phenomenal. They have many different flavors. They have um, uh, one of my favorite ones is summer sausage. They have a spicy and non-spicy and just all grass-fed, high-quality, convenient snacks. One of the challenges that many of us have as busy entrepreneurs, executives, anyone in this modern life, truly just uh, you know finding snacks that can hold us over when it's not maybe mealtime or maybe we're in a rush to get some protein and we're not sure how we're going to end our daily protein intake. One of my favorite ways to do so and with my kids as well it's just using a couple of grass-fed meat sticks to get uh, all of our daily protein intakes from a high-quality source you can trust, 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, and um, just love the flavors as well. You can, And then so many other great products as well that I haven't mentioned. They've got a bone broth protein, which is phenomenal. They've got protein bars, which I love and my kids love. And these guys are huge on supporting um, environmental restoration and animal welfare as well, which are obviously big, hot topics right now in our world. Um, so ladies and gents, head over to paleovalley.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 15% off your first order. And again, 
15% off our food is really significant because the margins on food products is very, very small, right? Some companies have large margins they work on, some of them have small, and we know that anything that's a food product, as you can imagine in a grocery store, the margins are incredibly small. And so we really appreciate Paleo Valley uh, supporting this podcast and supporting you and your ability to ultimately um, get the best quality products, put the best quality products into your body. So uh, thank you to Paleo Valley. Thank you for being here and thank you to Chris Palmer for enlightening us with this incredible conversation around how to optimize brain energy. Dr. Chris Palmer, thank you for joining me today, sir. As I mentioned briefly just before we started recording here, Dominic Agostino did mention you on the podcast. I've done a tremendous amount of research in the last couple of weeks, and I'm absolutely fascinated with your recent or your long-term research into the metabolic influence of mental illness or mental disease, and I'm incredibly grateful to welcome you. Thank you. Thank you for so much for having me on the show. Yeah, and uh, it's a really interesting topic because I think at some point, as I mentioned, everyone either is going to experience some type of psychological limitations due to a metabolic illness or metabolic disease or, or poor metabolic function, or they're going to know somebody who's dealing with mental illness and would benefit from improving their metabolic function. And you've got some really interesting experiments, you guys are releasing studies around uh, how metabolism is directly influencing people's mental well-being. And I'd love to maybe have you describe how you got into it. The somewhat longer, the medium story is, you know, for me, it, it began probably over 20 years ago. And at that point in time, I was uh, doing my residency and in my 20s, and I already was diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. Uh, and I was supposedly doing everything right. I was on a very low-fat diet, ultra-low-fat. I was exercising pretty regularly, at least three or four times a day or a week, and everything was getting worse. Blood pressure was going up year after year. Pre-diabetes was getting worse. All of my lipids were bad. And the doctor kept saying, you know, year after year, you got to do something about this. And I kept asking, what do I need to do? He's like, a low-fat diet and exercise. And I kept telling him, I'm, that's exactly what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm doing my residency, so I... I'm seeing people in the hospital getting legs amputated because of their diabetes. I'm seeing people suffering from heart failure. And I am very much thinking, I do not want to be this person in 30 years. There's no way in hell I'm going to let that happen to me. I'm trying to do everything I can. And, you know, finally, it just got to a point where he was pushing pills. He said, you've got to start medications. And I'm thinking, oh my God, if I'm in my 20s, if I got to start medication, I'm screwed. Uh, I'm going to be having a heart attack when I'm 40 or 50. Mm -hmm. So I decided to give the Atkins diet a try. I had just heard through the rumor mill that it was helping people with prediabetes and some other things. I didn't really believe it at the time. I was really prepared to just have to go on medication. I gave it a try. And within three months, my metabolic syndrome was completely reversed. But more importantly, I noticed a lot of mental benefits. I noticed that I had more energy I uh, was sleeping much better. I uh, was a lot more motivated and I had never really felt that way in my entire life. So I started recommending the diet to friends and family. Many of them were having similar benefits. And I started, you know, within a couple of years, I started using this treatment in patients with treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, and, and maybe a couple of other disorders. And lo and behold, it was working for a lot of people. And I was thinking, wow, like this the changing diet actually improves mental function, even in pe people with severe treatment-resistant major depression. 
who had already tried dozens of medications, decades of psychotherapy. Some of them had tried, tried shock treatment. For the most part, I laid low with all of that because, you know, using the Atkins diet to treat <laughs> mental illness sounds kind of crazy. Nobody would have believed it. Um, it was even more controversial back then. And everything changed for me as a psychiatrist in 2016 when, you know, one of my longstanding patients with what's called schizoaffective disorders, cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, he asked for my help to lose weight. And so I was like, let's try the ketogenic diet. I know that one well. Now, even though I was using this clinically with other patients, I had no expectation that this was going to do anything for this man. Um, at least not for his psychiatric symptoms. I just wanted to help the guy lose weight because, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, those are completely different than depression, right? Uh, like, like there's no way in hell it's going to do anything for him. So within two weeks, not only is he losing weight, but I start to notice this powerful antidepressant effect. He's making better eye contact. He's smiling more, talking more. And I'm thinking, wow, that's curious. He's getting that antidepressant effect that I've seen in so many other people. Wow, that's really remarkable. The shocking thing was within about six to eight weeks, he spontaneously tells me, you know, those voices that I hear all the time. I'm like, yeah, it's like they're going away. And he says, you know, those, you know how I always thought all these people were out to get me and they were controlling my thoughts and they were trying to harm me and they could put thoughts in my head and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, I know all about that. We've talked about that a million times. I'm thinking, yeah, I know about that. He says, I don't think that's true anymore. And now that I think about it, it probably never was. It sounds kind of crazy now that I say it. That man went on to lose 160 pounds and he was able to do things he had never been able to do since the time of his diagnosis. He was able to complete a school program. He was able to go out in public again. He was actually able to perform improv in front of a live audience. And, for, and this guy was a hermit because he was terrified that everybody was out to get him. And that completely upended everything that I knew as a psychiatrist, because I'm sitting here thinking like, whoa, like schizophrenia doesn't go into remission, number one. And I've never seen a treatment for schizophrenia work this well. Even the best antipsychotics don't do that. Even shock treatment doesn't do that, not over a long period of time. And oh, by the way, it helped people lose a lot of weight and everything on top of it. So even with our best treatments, we don't get results like this. And this is a diet. So I ended up going on a deep dive into the science of what in the hell just happened. Quickly learned that the ketogenic diet is not just for weight loss and not just for type 2 diabetes, but it's a longstanding evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. And that was important to me because we actually use epilepsy treatments every day in tens of millions of people for psychiatric disorders. So they include names like Depakote, Tegretol, Neurontin, Topamax, Valium, Clonopin, Xanax. All of those, if, if you've heard of any of those drugs, those are all anti-seizure drugs, but we use them every day in millions of people for mental disorders. So quickly, I connected those dots and realized, well, wait, th this isn't so far-fetched then after all. Like if, it, if this, this diet stops seizures, maybe it can stop psychotic symptoms too, at least in some people. So I quickly began using it in dozens more patients. I started collaborating with researchers all over the world, like was publishing and 
academic journals, speaking around the world on this topic. And for the last six years, I, I didn't stop with that because I, I really wanted to understand what can this tell us about mental illness that we don't currently know? Because again, this flies in the face of everything that we know. And through that process, I ended up developing, uh, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I ended up developing a unifying theory of what causes mental illness. Essentially, and although it, it sounds like I just made it up, I didn't make up anything. I took all of the existing research that has been around for decades and some of it even for centuries, and I put it together in a coherent way to try to help, initially to try to help me understand how in the hell could a diet do this? But ultimately, it helped me connect the dots of mental illness and create a theory that I think has the potential to transform the mental health field. That's a beautiful segue because my question that was coming to mind as you were speaking there, as well as diving into all the details of what you guys were actually doing is, is diet seemingly a trigger to mental illness early in life? Because I, I don't know how much of, of mental illness, excuse my ignorance, but I don't know how much of illness is genetic versus environmental. I'd like to just, you know, m maybe before even we get into that, I think it's, it's seems like a useful segue to for you to start, what is the unifying theory? Like, what is the the consensus you've come to with all your research to say, hey, this is what men this is what mental illness is. So the unifying theory in a nutshell is that all mental disorders, and you know, even that we might want to take a second in a little bit to define well, what exactly is a mental disorder? Yeah. Um, but but the unifying theory is that all mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain. In a nutshell, what I'm saying is that a mental disorder is represents a part of the brain malfunctioning. And the only way that you can put the existing science together to make sense of it is to unify it around the concept of what we call metabolism. And so instead of it being an imbalance of neurotransmitters, or instead of it being even a genetic disorder or a hormonal disorder, or a disorder related to trauma or stress. All of those things that I just mentioned absolutely positively do play a role, but they all connect at the level of metabolism or more specifically mitochondria. That once you understand the science of metabolism and mitochondria, you can connect all of those factors and you can put them together in a very clear, coherent way to understand how they can cause the brain to malfunction, which then results in symptoms of mental illness. The really powerful thing about this theory is that it, not, it, it explains treatments like the ketogenic diet, but it also opens up entirely new treatments and they're treatments that you and your audience already know. They're, it's about improving metabolic health. That when we improve metabolic health, we can improve brain health. But all I think all of you know, it's more than just exercise and it's more than just diet. That if you want to get in prime metabolic condition, let's say you want to perform, you, you want to get bigger muscles, you want to run a marathon faster, 
you're not only going to be doing exercise, you're also going to be e eating the right diet in the right way, but you're also going to be prioritizing sleep and stress reduction. You're going to be avoiding alcohol and marijuana and other drugs. You're probably going to be trying to not use prescription medications, especially ones that impair your metabolism and cause people to get fat or cause people to get diabetes. You're going to avoid those medications be, and, and you're going to put that all together into what you're going to call a training program or a comprehensive program. And the conclusion that I have come to is that programs exactly like that can help people with mental illness, not just depression and anxiety, because all of you already know that. There's no doubt in my mind, all of you already know, either yourselves or somebody that you know started exercising, started getting in shape, and they actually said, well, God, I it, like it's great to be in shape and it's great to have ripped abs or it's great to like run faster. But the thing I'm really noticing is that mentally I am so much sharper and I just feel great. And my life is like so much better. My relationships are better. Work is better. My ability to get stuff done is better. I'm more confident. Everything's better. And like the fact that I can run the race better or lift more weight, that's just like a nice benefit. But, but the real benefit is like what it's doing for me and my confidence and my life and my brain function. And so most people already kind of know that, especially your listeners. They probably already know that. What I'm saying is that those same approaches may very well help people with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia debilitating, horrible brain disorders that right now we treat with medications that cause metabolic impairment, that directly assault mitochondria, actually, and that are causing people to be slow and fat and diabetic and die early deaths. And we need a paradigm shift. And I think you... And a lot of people in your, a lot of your listeners, especially if they're training people or coaching or, you know, involved in the fitness community, like I'm going to be calling on all of you to help out because we're going to have a flood of people with schizophrenia saying, please help me and uh, please help me get better, help me improve my metabolic health. And they don't know how to exercise or do it safely. or So I think a lot of you are going to be involved in this movement, I'm hoping. Yeah. And um, so I come from a family of, there's a lot of, lot of uh, mental illness. There's a lot of addiction. And I just feel like I've been able to bypass that through exercise. I started exercising very young and it's very close to home. Like it's like everyone around has some type of addiction because they're trying to deal with some type of mental illness. They ever looks to me like, how did you overcome it? And I, the only answer is... One, I think purpose, having having a higher purpose, and two, like take training your body, right? Training your body every single day, and and like yourself, I'm sure there's been days or weeks where you don't train, and you're like, I just don't feel quite the same, right? Yeah, my body doesn't feel quite the same. Or if you eat a wrong meal, I just don't feel quite the same. And I think it's happening on a very acute level. So you're right. I think we do know it on an acute level, uh, but I think it's so important to hear something from someone like yourself who's saying, hey, this isn't just like an acute level, I eat, a, eat something bad and I feel poor short term. Like if you do that consistently, 
it's a slippery slope into potentially bad places. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. They don't. And you, you had asked me before, like, can diet, so can diet, is diet like the one and only one factor? Diet is- no, is, it, is it like a trigger? So like, I, I know there's probably some genetic predisposition, it may not be the type of thing where it's like an express genetically, but it's probably there. But is it this type of thing that ends up, you know, pulling, pulling a trigger? It can, but it, but it's complicated. But let me share one clear study that outlines this. So a lot of people- are going to be skeptical of this. But so we, we just had a study published in one of the leading psychiatric journals, 5,000 children followed from the ages of one to 24. And the researchers measured a, a, a number of things, but two of the things they measured were their weight and their levels of insulin. And the children who had the highest levels of insulin resistance beginning at age nine were five times, that's 500% more likely to develop bipolar disorder or schizophrenia at-risk syndrome by the time they were 24. Wow. They were, they were, so they were five times more likely to be at risk, which means they were showing some worrisome symptoms. They were three times more likely to already be di definitively diagnosed with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. The kids who gained the most weight around the time of puberty were four times more likely to be depressed by the time they turned 24. So we're now talking about the leading causes of disability on the planet. Mental disorders are the leading cause of disability and depression is the number one medical diagnosis. And as we're talking about insulin resistance and weight in you know, adolescence being a pretty powerful predictor for who goes on to develop these disorders. And I'm sure you thought about this, Dr. Palmer, but I, I'm going to ask the question is, why were they getting fat? It comes to mind for me, right? So if a child is over-consuming sugar or over-consuming calories, period, was that a coping strategy? Meaning from the time they were very young, they were experiencing something psychologically challenging or physiologically challenging, traumatic environment, et cetera. And they used uh, they used uh, food as a coping strategy, and that's what made them fat. So, is do you understand where I'm going with that? So, like, I'm curious if I'm sure you've thought it through, but I'm, is is it the type of thing that maybe they already had the predisposition prior, and food was their coping strategy, and that's why they got fat, and that's why they had high insulin levels? Has anyone explored that? So, I love that question because that is exactly where I'm thinking, and I I think it can be both. Yeah. I think it can be, you could be a kid who has a relatively decent life, but your family eats crap food. You're eating fast food all the time. There are no family meals. Everybody just snacks or grazes in front of the television set. And, and the kid is getting crap food at school and everywhere else. And that child may very well go on to develop insulin resistance, obesity, and that is going to set that child up for mental illness, you know, within 10 years, just from that alone. But I think you nailed it with, it's not always so simple. It's not always just people are making the wrong food choices. And so we just need to like wag our finger at them and tell them to make better food choices. Mm -hmm. Because I do think for some people, people who have, uh, you know, 
we have an abundance of evidence for that. So people who have adverse childhood events, so that includes abuse, trauma, you know, parental divorce, one of your parents, you know, being in jail, all sorts of things. Um, the more adverse childhood events you have, the more likely you are to have obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. The risk is anywhere from, think about 25 to 100% increased risk for those. You're about two to three times more likely to develop cardiovascular disease and cancer. And you're much more likely to have all sorts of mental disorders, mental problems, mental symptoms, like 30 times more likely to attempt suicide, but you're more likely to have all sorts of addictions and other things. And so what we know is that early stress and trauma can set off a cascade to both metabolic and mental disorders. And one of the big themes of my book is exactly that. I meticulously go through all of the known risk factors for mental illness. And oh, by the way, there are also well-documented risk factors for all of the metabolic disorders too. So, you know, even if we look at an adult, if we look at an adult with mental illness and we stress them a lot through trauma or just, you know, just make their life stressful in some way or another, their mental symptoms are more, more likely to get worse. And that's across the board for all mental disorders. Every mental disorder can get worse through trauma, through trauma or stress. But guess what? All the metabolic disorders can too. So if you've already got pre-existing cardiovascular disease, stress can make you have another heart attack. If you've already got diabetes, stress will make your blood sugars go even higher. If you've already got obesity, stress can make you gain even more weight. Everybody thinks it's because you're eating more, but not, it's not necessarily because you're eating more. It's because of the effect of stress on your metabolism. It's taking a metabolic toll. It's actually changing your metabolism. And even if you have the capacity to only eat the same amount of food, you may still very well gain weight just from the stress alone. But of course, we all know a lot of people do stress eat and they tend to stress eat junk food. So that just, you know, adds insult to injury if a person is doing that. So if we were to look at what's happening metabolically in the brain, I'm sure you have many theories, many potential avenues on how this kind of causes these mental illnesses to express, but I'd be curious to hear what, what it is. So it's actually not so complicated. That was the thing about that was the thing about my theory that was like really dumbfounding to me. Is when a cell, you know, we I, I basically, you know, look at it from all sorts of levels, from broad epidemiological levels, clinically, what's happening in individuals, but I, I go all the way to the level of an individual cell. Like what is happening in an individual cell when it is metabolically stressed? And there are two main things. If the cell is still alive, but it is metabolically stressed, two things can happen. One is that cell can become underactive. Because it is metabolically stressed, it doesn't have enough ATP, and therefore it just is sluggish in its ability to perform. And an underactive brain cell means that some 
functions of the brain will be underactive. Right. So that could res that could result in memory impairment, cognitive impairment. That could result in fatigue. It could result in a lack of motivation. That if those areas of the brain aren't firing on all cylinders and they are underactive, those things that you should be able to do, you won't be able to do. But paradoxically, metabolic dysfunction in a cell can actually result in that cell being hyper excitable. And what hyper excitable means is that the cell is firing when it shouldn't. And that results in symptoms that should not be there. And so the easiest example, the easiest example of a hyperexcitable cell to just share with your listeners what I mean is when we look at pain. Um, so a hyperexcitable pain cell is producing the sensation of pain when there is no stimulus actually causing the pain. The nerve is, is kind of short circuiting, firing in a way that it should not be. And that is producing the sensation of pain. When hyperexcitability occurs in the human brain, whatever, wherever that hyperexcitability is occurring is producing a sensation or an experience that those brain cells are normally producing. So if parts of your brain become hyperexcitable, if, if the anxiety pathways of your brain, for instance, become hyperexcitable, it means that you could have a panic attack out of the blue for no reason because those cells are metabolically compromised, they become hyperexcitable, just like a hyperexcitable pain cell. Similarly, people can have obsessive compulsive symptoms, people can have psychotic symptoms because of hyperexcitable brain cells. Would the only difference be the, the region of the brain? Would that be the primary difference? Yes, the region of the brain. And so the logical question is, well, what would make one region more vulnerable than another? And there are lots of factors that go into it in a similar way to what causes a pain disorder in different people. Some people can have a pain disorder in their arm. Other people can have it in their back. Some of them yeah. can have it in their leg. What causes it? Well, an injury in that region of the body can be one factor. When it comes to brain cells, brain cells have a lot of different inputs. They have different hormones, neurotransmitters, and other inputs going to those cells that are all influencing how resilient they are or how metabolically compromised they are. And so depending on the mix of factors that a person has, they are going to preferentially, and some of it may be genetic or epigenetic that you inherit from your parents. And so some people may just be more vulnerable to certain types of symptoms. So depending on the mix of factors that you have, you may get different symptoms. But the good news is that treating a metabolic problem, you don't, you don't actually have to know all of that granular information about what exactly is wrong with that one brain region. You can use broad-based metabolic treatments like diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction, substance use, you know, elimination. And those broad approach strategies can not only be effective for helping people run marathons or be stronger, you know, weightlifters, 
but they can actually be effective interventions to heal a metabolically compromised brain. So fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm going to speculate that you've had similar results. You mentioned results with one gentleman having lost a lot of weight and having an incredible uh, change to his schizophrenia. Um, has there been numerous repeated experiences or uh, patients with similar results or is it variable across the board? So, the, you know, in terms of the ketogenic diet, you know, no one intervention works for all people. I just want to say that. And again, it's similar to athletes. If you're training for a, a, an athletic competition, some people follow certain diets with certain macros or certain eating plans, and they work great for the one person, but they may not work great for another person. And so some of it does have to be individualized. But you know, even though it starts getting complex, I, I want to say there usually is a solution and people right. can usually figure it out. It, it's yeah. not, it, you, you're just looking at, at, are things improving? If they're not, we're going to modify. And here are some clearly known ways to mod make modifications. Right. But there are at least hundreds, if not thousands of patients who have overcome chronic mental disorders using the ketogenic diet. Oh. The the largest case series that we have so far was just published in the last month, actually. It was a case series of 31 patients with treatment-resistant mental illness. So they all had schizophrenia, bipolar, or chronic depression. And again, treatment-resistant. So they'd already tried lots of medications and other treatments, and they did not work. They were all hospitalized at a French hospital and placed on the ketogenic diet. 28 of them were able to do the diet and get into ketosis. So three were not. So we got to take that into account. Of those 28 patients, though, who were able to get into ketosis, 100% of them had at least some improvement in their mental symptoms. And I think 46% achieved clinical remission of illness. Huge. And which is huge, especially not just in treatment resistant, but we're talking about schizophrenia and bipolar. Yeah. And, you know, so for the depression, people might be, oh, okay, fine, whatever. But these are chronic disorders that right now everybody says are lifelong disorders. In the book, I include other examples, though. You know, ketogenic diet is not the only metabol is not the only way to improve metabolism. Uh, I list some patients who their primary intervention was to, number one, get off a lot of medications that were impairing their metabolism. And that was step one. And I want to say it was not easy and sometimes it was quite dangerous. So when people have been on medications for years or decades, getting off of them can be really difficult. And I just want to say to your listeners, please don't do that on your own. If you or somebody you know is, is, is on lots of med, please do it with a medical professional who can help you do it safely. But that was step one with one of the patients. And step two for her was exercise. So she went from being a chronically disabled patient in and out of psych hospitals, multiple suicide attempts, self-injury, to run it, you know, running ultra marathons, competing in triathlons, and like became a high performance athlete and has not had a mental illness in over a decade as a result she overcame and she was ill for well over i think probably she was medicated for over 15 years 
And so it's not like this was a transient one year thing that, that was just fleeting anyway. She was ill for 15 years. Her father, who's a physician, actually, I ran into him, I think maybe a year and a half ago or so. Again, he's a physician. And he like was telling me how phenomenally well she was doing. She's married, working full time. And he said, you know that you saved her life, right? <laughs> like she would be dead. She would be dead today if she had stayed in the traditional mental health system on all those meds. And, and so, you know, stories like that, I think are accessible. These treatments, these treatments are accessible. You and your listeners already know this, but these things are accessible to people, real people today. Do I need everyone with schizophrenia to become a competitive marathon runner? or a competitive weightlifter. No, I don't. But I need those types of strategies, the same kinds of strategies that you and your listeners are using to improve your metabolic health. Those same strategies can help people overcome chronic depression, personality disorders, suicidality, addiction. It's interesting. So just to share, because you mentioned addiction in particular, and the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism actually just did a study of the ketogenic diet for alcoholism and found that it was quite powerful. It mm. restored normal brain metabolism, which was one of the things they were looking to do. But at the same time, it decreased withdrawal symptoms from alcohol. People had fewer cravings for alcohol. And so they're doing a multi-million dollar study now of the ketogenic diet for alcoholism. These metabolic strategies actually are they are tangible real things that are affecting brain function yeah there's lots on fact there so i'm curious what in your experience um what role obesity is playing as compared to specific diet interventions because if someone were to you know potentially lose body fat that's probably gonna have some level of influence but i'm curious if it's you know if the ketogenic diet is necessary if there's a change in the metabolic health through you know, decreasing of insulin, inflammation, and oxidative stress. So, you know, could someone do this and still be consuming grains? Or would that would that be, you know, maybe maybe a possible but harder? I'm curious, like, is it the ketogenic diet itself or or is it the the metabolic change? I believe it's the metabolic change. And at the end of the day, what that means to me is that you're improving mitochondrial production and you're improving mitochondrial health. So there's this thing called mitophagy, kind of like get rid of old defective mitochondria and replace them with new ones. Yep. So that's what we're doing. And you're also stimulating mitochondrial biogenesis. So production of new mitochondria. And if, if all of the cells in the human body have an adequate supply of mitochondria and those mitochondria are functioning properly, from everything we can tell right now, that is optimal health. Hmm. And so, as you may or may not know, like prime athletes, marathon runners, high performers, the thing that if, if I do a muscle biopsy, the one and only one thing that sets their muscle apart from everyone else's muscle is the number and health of mitochondria in, that, in those muscle cells. Yeah. And um, so, when you're training, that's what you're doing. And so we do have some studies of the Mediterranean diet in depression and the Mediterranean diet for some people can work. 
um, the success rates were not tremendously high. It was about 30% versus 8% in the control group. So certainly an effect. And those people were almost certainly eating grains. So for some people, I think eliminating junk food might be enough of a hit to improve metabolism. There are lots of other things though. So if somebody's not sleeping well, helping them regulate their sleep and get better sleep might be enough in and of itself. Like if you give me a person who's kind of eating a junk food diet, but their sleep is awful, I'm probably going to focus on their sleep before I focus on the diet. And, And sometimes just helping them improve their sleep might be enough to improve their mental symptoms. Now, if they keep eating a junk diet and start getting overweight and obese and pre-diabetic and diabetic, that doesn't bode well for them. Um, You know, they're more likely to develop a mental disorder or Alzheimer's disease or other brain disorder. Again, I think we've got to meet people where they're at. We have to do common sense assessments of like, what are all the factors that are playing a role? Right. Um, so where does this overlap with the older um, theories of mental illness? So if it was uh, the um, you know, neurotransmitter theories of, of depression, and I'm not even sure what the theory of schizophrenia and bipolar was, but I'm curious how the metabolic theory kind of integrates with it, or does it eliminate it, right? So is, is it this, this um, it's definitively this is, and this is the only thing, or is it like an overlap? I mean, there's probably still some neurotransmitter uh, deficiencies here, or is, does the metabolic theory, like, as you say, unify it and tie, and tie it all together and eliminate the old ones? I So it doesn't eliminate the old ones. It integrates the old ones and helps us make sense of how they all fit together. But also helps us make sense of why you know, all of the limitations of the neurotransmitter imbalance theory. So there are there are two prominent neurotransmitter imbalance theories that a lot of that some people have heard of. So one is that low levels of serotonin cause depression. And the other for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder actually is that too much dopamine. It's too much dopamine. Mm. And uh, most people know dopamine as it relates to addiction. And so we talk about it with addiction. And in case you didn't know, dopamine is also related to Parkinson's disease. So although people talk about neurotransmitters as these simple things like, you know, dopamine, addiction, it's actually not really because dopamine, Parkinson's, dopamine, schizophrenia, like it starts getting really complicated fast. It's not that this theory, this theory is based on metabolic impairment of brain cells that results in dysfunction of those brain cells. So if a brain cell that is supposed to be secreting dopamine is metabolically compromised, it is going to be secreting either too little or too much dopamine. And it might actually do both of those things at different times of the day or week. The reason this is such a beautiful theory in my mind is because that explains why the symptoms wax and wane, right. which which right up still to this day, based on current theories, nobody can answer that common sense, obvious question. You know, if schizophrenia is a permanent brain disorder that causes hallucinations, why wouldn't people be hallucinating all the time every day? because they're not. And 
what causes them to hallucinate all of the stressors that exacerbate metabolic dysfunction. So any factor that makes your blood sugar go up will also make will also make somebody hallucinate. Sleep deprivation, stress, trauma, uh, infections, all of those things can make diabetes worse. And oh, by the way, they can also make people hallucinate more. And so the metabolic theory is the way to tie all of this stuff with neurotransmitters and hormones and stress and sleep and drug and alcohol use. It's a way to tie it all to, together. It doesn't replace any of it. it. It is the umbrella of how to connect the dots of mental illness. That's so incredibly fascinating. Is there anybody that shouldn't be doing this, this type of intervention? In term, if if you what you mean by intervention is a metabolic approach to yeah, yeah. so so go, you know going into a ketogenic diet to benefit mentally. I'm just curious. Like I'm always, I always want to make sure we're covering all our bases here and not not just making a blanket statement that this is universally beneficial unless it is. It sounds like it is for for in general for most humans. Um, you know, metabolic benefits or improving metabolism is generally beneficial. I'm curious if you found any instances where it makes people worse. Number one, I would say that there are many metabolic treatments other than the ketogenic diet. So one of the things, uh, you know, kind of one of my claims to fame over the last six years is I'm kind of an expert in the ketogenic diet for mental health. So a lot of people who know me think that my book is all about the ketogenic diet. I think they're going to be really disappointed because <laughs> it's not. It's actually about all of the metabolic strategies, including like exercise, sleep, drug and alcohol use, all of it. It's, it's about all of those things. So again, not every, I absolutely do not believe everybody needs the ketogenic diet. I think some people, if you're a hardcore alcoholic and you're not sleeping well, there are two really obvious op- interventions beyond ketogenic diet. Let's get you to stop drinking and let's get you sleeping well. But again, I mean, the the government is doing studies showing that the ketogenic diet can help alcoholics give up alcohol successfully. But if somebody's able to give up alcohol successfully without a ketogenic diet, that may be enough. Like, let's just stop poisoning your metabolism with alcohol and let's help you sleep better. So I, I do think that there are some people with eating disorders who who may have trouble implementing the ketogenic diet in a safe way. And they, it doesn't mean that they can't do it, but it, they would need to do it with pretty extreme supervision and monitoring. And there have been one or two patients that I have had to tell stop doing the ketogenic diet because they, their eating disorder was getting out of control in a dangerous way that I, I was very concerned about. Yeah. Can the ketogenic diet ever make symptoms worse? It actually can. So I want to I want to kind of come back to this paradox about metabolic impairment at the cellular level. Metabolic impairment can be either underactive cells or overactive cells. And both of those can cause symptoms. When you do a metabolic intervention like the ketogenic diet, it is dramatically changing metabolism very rapidly in a matter of days. And that results in broad shifts in metabolic resources going to different cells and the types of resources. So the obvious one is instead of glucose being the fuel source going to your cells, 
you're getting more availability of ketones and fatty acids to cells that can use fatty acids. For some people, if you've got a metabolically compromised cell and you give that cell an injection of rocket fuel, it actually can become hyper excitable and out of control in a, in a way, at least temporarily, because it's not repaired yet. It's still a, a damaged, metabolically compromised cell. But in the short run, when we're injecting this rocket fuel into it, it can kind of fire out of control, which means ketones when you say that. Which yes, which means it is going to be producing symptoms. So that cell will be producing symptoms, whether they be anxiety or hallucinations or pain or whatever, whatever that cell normally does, it's going to be producing symptoms in the short run. And that is really important to understand. And that's one of the tricky parts of treating a serious disorder like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So you actually have to understand what is this intervention doing? How can I interpret what it's doing based on the symptoms that I'm seeing? And then how can we do this in a safe way? So some people may need a gradual introduction to ketones or a ketogenic diet. Some people might benefit from doing other interventions first to try to restore some metabolic health to that cell before we do a ketogenic diet. So there are, you know, there are different situations. And I'm really primarily talking about people with serious mental disorders who have dangerous or life-threatening symptoms. To people who have bread and butter, depression, or brain fog, or burnout, I think you can probably do this safely on your own and we don't need to worry about you getting into big trouble because you haven't, presumably you have not had dangerous or life-threatening symptoms. But for people who've had dangerous life-threatening symptoms, I really don't want them doing these treatments on their own for the reasons I just outlined because initiating these treatments can actually make symptoms worse before we get them better. You've intermittently mentioned anxiety in there from time to time. Does this treatment also seem to work with anxiety? Yes. Um, I, I know a number of patients who have overcome lifelong crippling anxiety disorders, a whole range, just bread and butter anxiety, but also post-traumatic stress disorder, also OCD. And sometimes those kind of get, you know, mixed and matched with anxiety disorders. Yeah. But I, I know a number of patients with all of those diagnoses who have experienced extreme improvement with metabolic interventions. I know a lot of people who consume carbohydrate because it helps alleviate anxiety acutely. So I think the, the thought of eliminating carbohydrate may, be, may feel like a, a steep hill to climb because they're using it just like they use alcohol to alleviate that anxiety. So it's good to know that it, it's been proven in effective therapy. So anyone listening who has anxiety, which seems to be a relatively common occurrence, um, in the in the current uh, scope of the world, but to have an intervention there, if they're willing to kind of uh, exist through maybe the first couple days of uh, you know, discomfort until they get into ketosis, I would say the first couple weeks. And and your 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 comparison with alcohol is spot on. So you know, again, if if a cell is hyper excitable, you want to suppress that cell's function, and alcohol is a great way to do it large doses of carbohydrates can also do it. But if if you look at somebody who is using alcohol on a regular basis to suppress their anxiety symptoms, and then you ask them to go cold turkey from alcohol, 
their anxiety is going to go through the roof. Yep. And that doesn't mean that the answer is keep drinking alcohol. <laughs> but what that means is that we have to come up with a safe and tolerable way to get them off alcohol. And and some for some people, that might mean a detox. For others, it may mean a gradual reduction. For some, it might mean we use a medication during the transition or we use other stress reduction technique. But again, just asking people, stop alcohol. It, it's a simple, obvious solution. You know, if you're alcoholic, stop drinking. Problem solved. Great. But but, you know, when push comes to shove and when you're dealing with real people, it's actually not quite so simple. And uh, and so I'm I think the same thing applies to these other metabolic interventions. So ketogenic diet is a very broad spectrum approach. There's so many different ways to uh, ultimately tackle an effective ketogenic diet. And I'm curious if you've seen specific approaches be more effective than others. You mentioned originally doing the uh, Atkins, and then you said they're now, I'm sure it's nothing like, I don't, I don't know exactly what the Atkins looked like back then, but I'm sure it's an evolution of uh, high fat, low protein, relatively low protein diet. So I'm curious if you've seen, you know, does protein amounts matter? Because I know Dominic D'Agostino usually says stay protein doesn't affect ketosis for the most part. Um, have you seen any difference there as far as maybe macro ratios or even specific food choices? Like are certain fats better than others? Some people say dairy is very inflammatory. It's going to make you metabolically deranged. I'm curious if you see any effect from different types of foods. It's a great question. And the uh, unfortunate complicated answer is I don't have a one size fits all answer for that. And as probably you and many people already know is, you know, the, the first thing that I usually want to assess and take into account is how much fat does the person have on their body. So if I'm dealing with somebody who is obese, it means that they've already got a lot of fat to tap into. So that person typically only needs to restrict carbohydrates. They do not necessarily need a high, high fat diet they, because they've already got tons of fat available um, in their fat stores. So if we restrict carbohydrates, let them eat unlimited protein, most of them will be in high levels of ketosis. And that can be highly therapeutic for some people. As they lose weight, and I've been through this process with several patients, as they lose weight, so as they lose 160 pounds, they no longer have as much fat to tap into. And their body actually starts getting really stingy with giving up the remaining fat because the body remembers, wait, you used to weigh 340 pounds and now you're only 170 pounds. You're starving to death. We're, I'm going to plummet your metabolism. We're not letting you tap into any more fat stores. We, we are going to you know, plummet your metabolism, plummet your energy so that you don't die of starvation. I mean, that's what the body's trying to do. And so with those patients, you do have to start modifying the macros. And that means lowering the protein a little bit or a lot for some, increasing some fat calories and, and tweaking it to get the desired effect. For what I'm doing, my desired effect is improve brain function. So I'm looking at brain symptoms to tweak the diet. And sometimes I'm paying meticulous attention to levels of blood ketones 
Other times I'm not, but um, sometimes I'm really trying to tweak the diet and see if we can find a theme or a pattern for a specific patient of blood ketones greater than 1.5 result in symptom improvement. And when you dip below 1.5, your symptoms start coming back. So let's, that's our target. We've identified this pattern for you. And what I just said is not an arbitrary example. I've seen that pattern in many patients, actually. Patients with serious mental disorders, they usually need ketones greater than 1.5 to get a highly therapeutic effect. So you're seeing a benefit from exogenous ketone esters or ketone salts in as much as it's benefiting potentially it mental illness. On their own, unfortunately, no. And it's not for a lack of trying. I've tried. <laughs> it would be so much easier to just have people drink ketones. But unfortunately, no. It, you know, the ketogenic diet is doing a lot more than just producing ketones. Ketones are one biomarker of an extraordinarily complex metabolic treatment. Ketogenic diet is changing levels of inflammation, reducing insulin levels and insulin signal, you know, improving insulin signaling and uh, changing the gut microbiome and all sorts of other things. And if you're drinking a bottle of ketones and also eating a donut at the same time, that donut is actually not allowing those other changes to occur. The person is still going to be have an inflammatory, high insulin reaction to that donut. And so ketones will, on their own are not going to save the day for that person. I wish they would. I really do. And maybe someday we'll figure out a magic ketone cocktail or something that allows people to eat their donuts and maintain their mental health. But right yeah, now, we're not right, <laughs> right now. No. <laughs> yeah. And so you mentioned you've written a book. The book is called Brain Energy. So you can order it on a- anywhere where books are sold pretty much. Amazing. And so what are you interested in now? So obviously you've done a lot of research in, in this area. Where is your focus directed right now as far as maybe the next six to 12 months or six to six months to three years as far as research and what problem are you trying to solve? So it's a great question. There's a coalition of researchers, actually, uh, uh, dozens of neuroscientists, neurologists, psychiatrists, metabolism experts, mitochondrial experts who are all working together, funded through philanthropy from a family their last name is the Bazookis, and uh, they have set up a research fund to fund a lot of uh, this research. So we've got five uh, controlled trials of the ketogenic diet for serious mental illness getting underway now. A lot of those people in the group had already been doing much of this research for some of them for decades, and they're they're all starting to collaborate, trying to move this forward as a field. My primary focus, honestly, is spreading the word and educating people about the metabolic mitochondrial theory of mental illness that's really outlined in this book. What I am hoping to do is actually start a mental health movement because right now, you know, again, mental disorders are the leading cause of disability in the world. And it's not because people aren't getting treatment. It's because our treatments fail to work for far too many of them. And people are frustrated and hopeless and desperate for any answer to improve their life. And the pills and the psychotherapy and the shock treatments that we are currently offering them are not working for far too many of them. And I don't want to take away that they do work for some people, and that's great. We're serving those people well. Fine. They can keep getting that. 
but far too many people are not served by our current treatments. And I want major changes in the mental health field. And I want people being offered metabolic treatment options that have the capacity to put what we currently think of as chronic lifelong disorders into full remission so that people can kind of go on their merry way, live happily ever after, run marathons if they want. But be instead of being on disability, have a job and be a productive tax-paying citizen. Like, what's not to love about that? And the patients that I deal with, I have patients in tears all the time in my office, desperate to work, desperate to just be normal, desperate to get people's respect, desperate to take care of themselves. So, although there's so much shame and stigma with the disability system and everybody thinks it's a bunch of lazy slackers who don't want to work, I want to say that I know a lot of people who are desperate to work. They are desperate to pull their own weight, but they can't because their brain doesn't work right. Their brain is tormenting them or preventing them from doing things that you and I can do normally. And if we can restore their brain function through metabolic treatment, it, it not only reduces their suffering, it not only is going to save a ton of money for the healthcare system, it's going to like turn those people into productive citizens and like it's going to save money in the long run. That's wonderful. That's Palmer. Thank you so much for joining us. That's an incredible mission. And I'm, I'm grateful to be able to help you share that mission. And I look forward to reading the book. So thank you for making the time. Thank you for writing the book. And thank you for imparting us with so much wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap. Thank you for being here on the Muslim Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Matt Wikolsky, always searching the world for information that can ultimately give us insight into how to live a more effective life. Uh, today's podcast with Chris Palmer is truly nothing short of remarkable. Just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I love the fact that he's been willing to kind of be contrarian to conventional psychiatric therapies and interventions. A lot of people in this world are suffering with some type of mental illness, disease, um, depressions, so many different variations. And it seems as though there could be a significant impact with simply interven intervening on your metabolism. So if you or anyone you know is suffering from any type of psychological uh, challenges, whether it be depression, bipolar, or any other psychiatric issues, please go ahead and share this podcast with them so they can have access to this information from Dr. Palmer. Um, and thank you once again to our sponsors for today's podcast, Paleo Valley. If you're someone who is on a ketogenic diet, these meat sticks are a phenomenal choice. Actually, their bars are a phenomenal choice as well that are no sugar and taste delicious. Uh, and also you can use their um, bone broth protein, which I love to use. Usually I'll use that um, in my pre-workout shake. I'll put a little bit of bone broth protein because I know taking collagen before my training can actually significantly improve bone and joint health. Ladies and gents, I appreciate you. Thank you for being here. I know your days are busy. I know you're looking for the best information in the world. We do our best to need to provide it to you. Thank you for being here. If you're not already subscribed, do that now. We get some amazing things coming at you in the next few weeks and months in the future. Talk to you soon. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.